what we want to share with you in 15 minutes is impossible is El Grito de la Frontera, the cry of the border, which was a gathering where many of you first joined us. Edna was there with us, um, Darren, uh, Christina, John, Jackie, all of the above. Um, so where are we speaking from and to? We're speaking to the US-Mexico border, La Frontera, as one of those crucifying realities that Dr. Kelly called us to reflect about and engage with yesterday. We, many of us heard that, the crucifying realities, the crucifying spaces, the crucified people, los pueblos crucificados. A border that is there but is also here between and among us. A border that is present wherever our communities can be found throughout this country and the world. La frontera está aquí. The border is all about the marginal and the central, but it's the place specifically that makes the invisible visible, that puts that which is marginal at the center. So I want us to think about the border that way. As our sister Gloria Ansaldúa put it, I commend to you if you don't know her work, as she put it, es entender la frontera como una herida abierta, as an open wound, as a place of encuentro, of convergence, but also of confrontation between the U.S. and Mexico, the U.S. and Latin America, the global north and the global south, etc. Are we on it? Yeah. The border as the space that literally marks the policing of whiteness, ostensibly through geography, but in practice through race, nationality, and class, and all of the ways they're intertwined. Como nos hacemos fronterizos. Grounded in and shaped through what we refer to as narratives, of suffering and liberation. It's the border understood as a laboratory for institutionalized racism and structural injustice through immigration policy, free trade, the drug war, and what have to be understood as mass human rights crimes like family separation. Understanding specifically, for those of us who understand like human rights frameworks and how they play out or should and should be applied to these kinds of contexts, understanding family separation as acts of torture and forced disappearance, Guantanamo style, as crimes against humanity pursuant to the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, crimes against humanity. It's also about the indefinite detention of asylum seekers, families, and children. In other words, turning away those who seek protection, pidiendo posada, there's no space at the inn. And producing what we will soon see is a string of refugee camps along the Mexican border, on the Mexican side. That's where we're headed. So, it's the border as an occupied territory. What Gaza and the West Bank and the exclusion of Arab-Israeli citizens are to Israel, it's the other within. It's the border and its colonial and neo-colonial legacies. Spain, the US, indigenous dispossession, our brother Mark yesterday, and genocide, imperial war against Mexico. Yesterday we heard echoes of a specific moment in history that I want to kind of invoke too. 1954, we heard about the importance of before Brown, right? That MAGA means going back before Brown. Those are the good old days, right? Before Brown versus Board of Ed. Two weeks before Brown, a much less heralded but equally important Supreme Court decision, Hernandez versus Texas, which is the first time that people of Mexican descent were recognized as being included within the protections of the 14th Amendment, two weeks before Brown. 
So if you read Brown, check out Hernandez versus Texas. It's the first time lawyers of Mexican origin stood before the court and were recognized as lawyers on behalf of the descendants of that dispossession. So 1954, 53-54 was the peak of mass deportations of people of Mexican origin, something that was officially called Operation Wetback. That was its official name, Operation Wetback. But 1954 was also the year, and I know our sister Damaris is going to refer to this, of US-backed CIA intervention, subversion, in Guatemala, overthrowing a democratically elected reformist government and replacing it with a military dictatorship. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Setting in motion the processes of indigenous genocide in the 1980s and of forced displacement en masse, which have today become mass forced migration from Guatemala and the entire region. That's the caravans. Not an invasion, but people seeking protection and affirming unrecognized rights. This is a moment of exodus. We heard about that this morning from Reverend Jackie, from my dear sister. A moment of exodus. So there's a straight line from there to the completely predictable and thus avoidable deaths last December, first on December 8th, and then on December 24th, in the 21st century, of two Guatemalan indigenous migrant children in the custody of the Border Patrol. Yeah? Jacqueline and Felipe, can we say their names? Jacqueline Calmaquin and Felipe Gomez Alonso. And were we sharing you some images about them? We just returned about a month ago from a pilgrimage to their home villages to try and retrace their steps and to try and express to their families our love, our solidarity, and our commitment, and it's one of the actions, commi commitments, campaigns that we bring to you, is a campaign to ensure that even if their journey ended in the hands of the Border Patrol, aged seven and eight, seven and eight, December 8th and December 24th, Felipe died on Christmas Eve, December 24th, that even if their journeys ended there, their stories did not, because they lived through you. So this is a moment of exodus, but it's also a Selma moment. Those of us who were following the news about the caravan, that supposed invasion, and the caravans continue, and in fact, it's daily where we live, conjured up images of the Edmund Pettus Bridge, because there was another bridge, it was the Rodolfo Robles Bridge, between Tecunumán on the Guatemalan side and Ciudad Hidalgo on the Mexican side. And you might have seen those images at the end of October of the caravan full of women and children seeking protection, mostly from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, being bottled up on the bridge and not being permitted to pass. What's that about? Edmund Pettus, Rodolfo Robles, a Selma moment, the caravans. It's about the struggle that this church is about, that this congregation and this community is about, the struggle for revolutionary love through the affirmation of unrecognized rights, two key rights, the right to a dignified life and the right to migrate. So what is the border? The border is a wall. We know what we're up against. But the, wall is all, but the border is also a bridge. In fact, the wall is also a bridge, and we'll hear about that from my hermana, Ilka. The border is a wall, the border is a bridge, the border is a window which permits us to see things we might not otherwise see, but it's also a mirror because it permits us to look at ourselves 
and to ask ourselves in light of the practices that are recurrent at the border and ha that have become normalized, like family separation, what does that say about us as a society, as a people, as people of faith, as people of conscience? It's Jacqueline and Felipe. So we ask you to stand with us. Our vision is a national and transnational interfaith movement for justice at the border. And the border, let's remember, is wherever our communities live and work and contribute. A movement for justice that transcends all borders beyond and without borders. Muchas gracias. What a pleasure to be here with you. Um, it's a space I had seen in my room through a screen, seeing Jackie deliver those powerful messages, and what a blessing to be here with you today. I am from the borderlands, a place border theorists and Saldua, like Camilo was saying, calls a wound. A wound in the land dividing flesh, dividing peoples but also bringing them together in unimaginable ways, a place of encounter where the global north meets the global south. So I'm what they call a transfronteriza, a transborder woman. I was born in El Paso, but I was raised in Ciudad Juarez by my mom and my grandmother. And after my studies, I came back to my communities, and like thousands of people, I crossed back and forth every day changing languages, changing foods, changing cultures, currencies, realities. Talk about double consciousness, right? It's a diverse metropolitan area of two million people, which I know, I know, for New York probably <laughs> that much. Um, but it's huge. And if you go up to the Franklin Mountains at night, or to the top of a parking lot where I took some of our fellows from middle, you can see lights as far as your eye can see. And it's a lot bigger than a lot of people realize. And it's a lot beautiful and richer than a lot of people realize. So in the midst of all this rhetoric about my home, I want to share with you a little bit of what my community means to me and what I know to be truth about my community. And what I learn and continue to learn every single day by crossing these bridges back and forth. And one thing is how interconnected they are. See, one holiday in one country will affect my commute coming or going and traffic in the other country. If the Mexican peso goes down, people in Juarez won't go shopping to El Paso, and that hurts businesses, especially downtown. We feel the cold approaching zero in Celsius, and the heat and fire and hate reaching over 100 degrees. And I don't understand what temperature it is if I don't see both. <laughs> I was certainly not prepared to come to New York. <laughs> and even daylight savings, we change it at the same time. Most of the time, a different day than either country, as if it wasn't confusing enough, right? And it makes it really hard when you're traveling. But I think it's because we feel at the same pace. And it has told me also a lot about myself, my identity, and about other people. You see, every there, they have lines for everything. If you have an American passport, it's one line. If you have a Mexican passport, it's another line. Do you have money to get a global entry pass or TSA approved? It's, you don't have to wait in line. It's a constant space where you constantly have to be proving yourself. And just to mention, what a, what a privilege to be able to cross back and forth and move across these boundaries. And I say that because 10 years ago is when I first started crossing. The change in the political system in Mexico 
declaring the war on drugs, plus the recession of 2008, caused a lot of conflicts between cartels in Ciudad Juarez. And my community became one of the most dangerous cities in the world. There will be shootings at schools, at public places. And my mom decided to make the sacrifice to pay for a private school in El Paso, Lydia Patterson, where I will go. I still lived in Juarez, but she said, at least when I pay those four pesos, she will breathe again, because she knew I was going to be safe if I just crossed that bridge. And that's what we call it at home, bridges, those points of entry. And I think that's what they mean. I think there's a reason why there are bridges where I come from, and I think it's a wisdom that they bring. But she will be, she will be safe, and I will be safe. And she knew by giving me that opportunity that I will be able to do grand things. But unfortunately, I knew there was people in my community who did not have that privilege and who were not able to afford education in El Paso or a visa. And I knew that, yes, I had to wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning and wait two, three hours in line under the elements, and I would complain, why do I have to do this every day? But I could reach safety. Unlike many other of my friends, of my family, that couldn't cross. And no, my fear was not greater, and I was not more righteous. What a privilege. It also told me what people cross the bridge. And I think I can say this um, because I heard the stories. I mean, waiting in line for a few hours, it makes you talk to people, right? Otherwise, you're just going to get bored. And you talk to people, you complain together about the weather, about the lines. You ask where you come from, where you're going, what do you do over there? You become vulnerable with each other, and you build relationships. And so I can, I can tell you that I know what people come, or why they cross the bridge. And it's to follow their dreams, to reunite with family, to give the best of themselves, to find and build a safe home. And so last year, coming and going back and forth, I started meeting families coming from Guatemala, from Honduras, El Salvador, from Brazil, coming to this bridge, finding safety, like I did 10 years ago. And I can tell you those same reasons that they're coming from. But this time, it's not four hours that they're having to wait, it's not three hours that they're having to wait, it's days, it's weeks, it's months, they're, putting, they're being put under bridges, they're having to sleep on the ground with their children under whatever weather conditions there are. And I know while people are trying to paint them as criminals, I hear their stories and I know they're survivors of those crimes. And I hear their stories and I hear that they've been walking for two months with their children on their backs, going through mountains, through deserts. And I know from reading epics, that's what heroes do. And I know I have been gifted by hearing of their stories of resilience, of their courage, of their creativity, of their ability to smile and make jokes despite everything else, I know I have been blessed by learning of that creativity, of that sense of humor, of that courage, of that perseverance. And it's way more than I could ever give by the snacks on my backpack or anything I do or say to them. And I know it's not only me that has been changed and the way I think and see the world, but it's also my community has been very gifted 
by the opportunity to serve and engage. You see, it made us have to learn to organize ourselves and learn to find shelters and open things at night and everybody just brings what they have at home, pizza, chicken, whatever they can get their hands on and bring it. And we learn to do it fast and efficiently. And they taught us to organize ourselves and, and, and be leaders, you know, and talk to each other, which sometimes we're not doing. But it's not only my community and myself that have learned about this encounter, it's also our society that is learning right now. Because they're making us accountable. They're making us ask ourselves hard questions. They're pointing things out in our society that were structurally wrong all this time and we had not just talked about it. They're pointing out how afraid we were of black and brown bodies and their sacredness. They're making us ask ourselves hard questions that right now are defining our character and that will define history. See, it is the margins, the borders, the marginalized, the most vulnerable that have the strength and the creativity to circumvent situations. They're constantly having to face oppression, oppressive policies and systems that work against them, and they're having to have the creativity to survive. It is no wonder that a young woman, Greta, is leading our environmental justice movement right now. It is no wonder that Lane Murdoch, our amazing speaker yesterday, is leading our country in this new conversation. It is no wonder, because they have the creativity, they have the imagination to think outside of the structures that we normalize so often. They know that's not the only answer. And it is an opportunity right now of reimagining what it means to live in our society, of reimagining just borders. What does that mean? It is not an answer that we find here together all this time, but it's a wisdom, it is a wisdom, it is a perseverance, it is a richness that is coming to our borders right now. And no wonder they're coming to another border, another place that has also been marginalized for so long whose fate has depended on people taking decisions somewhere else, on DC, on Mexico, but never there. But yet, still finding the creativity to circumvent that, to create its own rules. And so going back to Ansaldúa and, and her image of the bridge, of the, of the border as a wound, I think she was right. Because wounds are where we heal from. We don't heal from any other parts but from the wounds that we're looking at and that we're caring for. And oh boy, we have a lot of healing to do, right? So I want to invite you not only to come to my bridge, but to find the bridges and borders in your communities those opportunities to be vulnerable and to get to know each other so deeply that you know we're they and us. That's not a thing anymore. It's just us. It's communion. Because it's not until we put the margins at the center that we will find that healing. And all these margins intersect. They're not alone. And so this is an opportunity that is coming to us right now and we need those centers to be at this, we need those margins to be at the center for us to move forward and to love one another like we're supposed to. Thank you. I am a pastor in La Frontera, in the border in Washington Heights here in New York City, a community of immigrants. 
But I want to just, I want you to remember with me a, a movie who, which I love. In the movie Black Panther, <laughs> we learned that uh, King T'Chaka makes a decision to leave behind the boy of his brother, who he thought and believed had betrayed the people of Wakanda. And when his son, King, uh, king T'Challa, becomes king after the passing of his father, he asks his advisor, Zuri, why did his father decide to leave this little boy behind and alone? And Zuri said, he was the truth we chose to omit. And the way I look at the situation, our immigration issue in this country, the way we look at the issues at the border, the people in the caravan and the people at the border and immigrants in this country, they represent the truth we have chosen to omit. And what's, what's happened, Camila already covered, which I'm not gonna repeat, is that the caravan didn't start this year or last year. It started in the 50s. It started a long time ago. And now we're like, oh, where are these people coming? We just don't know. <laughs> Listen up. <laughs> we have made some decisions to remove democratically elected leaders. We have given the land to Companies like the United Fruit Company to benefit from all of that land and leave the farmers and the indigenous people landless. We have planted some bad seeds and now the people that we chose to leave behind, they're coming back. We, oh, this is the truth that we have chosen to omit. And just last year, the Washington Post regarding this subject published an article in October that's in, and they quoted, the migration crisis stems not from foreign nations duping the United States, but rather from American econ economic development policies designed primarily to promote goals, including anti-communism, unregulated foreign markets, and later drug control that have exacerbated the poverty, despair, and violence, such policies were supposed to alleviate. And some of the things that I want to address with you this afternoon is the things that we hear all the time about immigration. For example, we hear all the time that immigrants are taking American jobs. I just want to paint the picture for you. There is no American family that says, look at that immigrant working 17 hours a day, picking strawberries and lettuce, and that is a job my son should have. <laughs> There's no American family that says, oh, look at the nanny taking care of the white lady's kids while her kids are in Guatemala and Honduras and Nicaragua being raised by other people, and they, she will not see them in five, seven, 10 years. Look at her, this is what I want for my daughter. And we say things like, oh, these immigrants, they're here draining the system. So let me just give you a couple of statistics. According to the Institute of Taxation and Economic Policy, they reported that immigrants, included undocumented immigrants, pay about $11.7 billion a year in state and local taxes, and approximately $13 billion to Social Security. And these are benefits that they will never get back because some of them are not filing taxes. And those who might be filing taxes are not really their social security number. So these are, you know, let me just say this in no uncertain terms. Immigration is stabilizing social security for us. Stabilizing it. If all immigrants will be deported today, 
It will contribute to the fast collapse of our social security system. Why is that? Because people are born in America and people die in America. It's a washout. So immigration continues to insert more people and therefore more people who give into the system. And our social security is dependent on those who work now to help pay for those who are taking social security now. And that repeats itself as, you know, hopefully we will have a social security when I retire, but statistics say that by 2034, our system will collapse. It's a stark contrast to the rhetoric that we hear that immigrants are draining the economy. Let's talk about benefits. The belief that immigrants are just taking over the benefits uh, for those, those who rightfully should have them is also a myth. Benjamin Powell wrote a book called The Economics of Immigration. And he said that depending on the state, welfare benefits are generally unavailable to legal immigrants during their first five years of residency. And these benefits are unavailable to unauthorized or undocumented immigrants and are denied to lawful migrant workers, with the exception of just having an emergency Medicaid. And so I am not an economist. I'm a pastor. I have a, a business degree, but I'm not an economist. I'm a local pastor of churches, not only in Fort Washington, but before that have had immigrants sitting there who are amazing, extraordinary, hardworking, with the hope that they can do better for their families, just like you and me, people, just like you and me. But what we're looking at and we're experiencing in our country is that Immigration is not necessarily an economic issue. The immigration problems that we have, it's really a political issue. And it's being fueled by racism, prejudice, and xenophobia. The journey of, of a pastor with an immigrant family is one that would give you this view into a life that you don't know here in the United States. I remember in my first church, I sat down with a woman from Mexico, and she said, what was I going to do? I had one egg to eat a day, and it was me, my husband, and my little girl. Who was I going to give that egg to? So I put my life on the line to see if we could live. And that was in Juarez a few years ago when they were killing over 6,000 people every three months. And when it comes to immigration, Friends, you know, we have to understand that we need to begin with a prayer of admission and confession. We have forgotten the benefits that we have reaped from countries like Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Latin America. We have forgotten how many people were made rich by the United States preserving their presence in their interests in those countries. And not the people who live there, but, but here, here in the United States. And most recently, a couple days ago, we heard a pronunciation. And this was the pronunciation. We're full. There's not one person that fits more in the United States. We're full. We are full. I'm sorry. No one fits. We're full. And I looked at my husband and I said, we're full. Apparently, we're full. Because this is how we are communicating these messages. The problem in the border is huge. It's awful. We're full. Don't come in. Turn around. What happened to full sentences? Help me, Jesus. If we are full, where is the data? My goodness. And when we say about people, you know, go turn around. It is a complete, a complete dismissal of the humanity of any human being who have traveled for weeks and days to get to perhaps the hope of a better life. And those people that die in the process of going back, who is going to name their names and be held accountable for that? 
because we are here at the Revolutionary Love Conference, and here we are at a different moral narrative. Who's going to be responsible for the children dying? Jacqueline, Felipe, so many others, because we said, we fool. Turn around. It's bad. It's huge, this problem. <laughs> and I tell you this, in my neighborhood, in Washington Heights, we have refugees, we have immigrants, and we also are having, after Hurricane Maria, what I call citizen refugees. Because we cannot even do right by our own citizens. And I'm gonna end with this. You and I, we have a song in our hearts. Mary had a song in her heart, the Magnificat. We have a song in our hearts. And I want you that during this conference, you access your song. I don't know what that is, but I'm gonna tell you mine. My song comes from the, from the lips of an Argentinian author and, and writer and singer. Her name was Mercedes Sosa. And she wrote a song and sang it that said, Solo le pido a Dios que lo injusto no me sea indiferente. Que la, que la reseca muerte no me encuentre vacía y sola sin haber hecho lo suficiente. I only ask God that what's unjust in the world does not become indifferent to me that the dry and arid death does not find me empty and alone without having done enough. That is my song. Solo le pido a Dios que lo injusto no me sea indiferente que la reseca muerte no me encuentre Vacía y sola sin haber hecho lo suficiente. And I will say that to us in this Revolutionary Love Conference, I'm going to lend you my song. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your powerful, powerful words this early afternoon. Um, I had the privilege of going to El Paso a few months ago with Middle Church and all of these beautiful people and Jackie and John. And um, I have a, my first question for you, I'll start with the first question, then we'll open it up to all of you with Mike Runners, is uh, for churches who might not be as involved as they would like to be at the border, uh, I know that you work with United Methodist Women, and all of you have worked with organizations, nonprofits, and churches. Where's a place people can either up their game if they're already a little involved, or um, get started? One place to start is our website, hopeborder.org, Hope Border Institute, which had the honor of hosting Christina and Jackie and John and Edna and Darren and Damaris, um, a very powerful delegation from, uh, from Middle on two occasions, actually recently. Um, I don't know if Edna can help us. There's, uh, we wanted to share with you copies of our most recent report. We'll be spreading those around. Maybe not literally one per person, but at least every two or three. And the, the report is available on our website. It's called Hope and Resistance at the Border. Hope and Resistance at the Border. Um, and there's a previous report from a year ago called Sealing the Border. So if you're interested in kind of diving deeper. But the other thing is like that very powerful delegation led by Reverend Jackie that was with us at the border, come, come to the border. We need that support, that solidarity, that presence. The communities there need that. And we will continue to be in touch with you about possibilities of when you can come and the kind of work we can do together. Are there questions from the audience? 
Good afternoon. I was born in Honduras. My wife, Damaris Whitaker. Um, my, I have a, I have a question, but more or less a suggestion, and I'm asking the panel. Um, we are right now working towards helping the people in Honduras. Uh, I was recently in a TV panel where it's a group of young men going into senior centers, helping shower them, bathe them, uh, take care of them. Um, they, we also have a program that may be coming to New York. And uh, what we're trying to do is to try and build the economy in Honduras so that many people do not have to take that drive and that long 45-day stretch to from <coughs> which um, I'm a retirement health worker and I was merchant marine. I left Honduras when I was 15 years old. I um, missed my country. I missed everything in my country. Of course, I'm glad and happy and blessed that I was blessed with a country that gave me a lot. So Edna and I have been talking about trying to find ways to help establish, reestablish the economy in Honduras. One way, of course, it's political, but I'm not going to go doing too long. We would talk about this longer. So thank you. And I just want to say, if I can add real quick, thank you for, for mentioning that, because there's work to do everywhere, right? I think something that we all said is the borders are everywhere. And that means there's work to do here in New York, there's work to do at the border, there's work to do in Guatemala. And until we realize that we need to find healing here, in Mexico, in those countries, in Central America, otherwise we won't be healed here and we won't be healed there. And so there's shelters, there's places that we can definitely go and protest too, you know, um, getting a little bit out of our comfort zone and supporting initiatives like that that are changing lives everywhere, here and there, and, and bring, bring, building those bridges. So thank you for mentioning that. Uh, you are all terrific to hear. Thank you so much for being here. I serve a congregation in Providence, Rhode Island that's a sanctuary church. Providence has declared itself to be a sanctuary city. We have a Latino mayor who's done a great deal uh, to that end and also done a great deal to help our own congregation in working to be a sanctuary congregation. But there's this larger issue about what it means to be a sanctuary city, how different one city's version of being a sanctuary city is from another, how meaningful or unmeaningful the status of being a sanctuary city is. And so uh, while I take seriously uh, your invitation to come to the border and see more about what's happening there, I'd also like to know any wisdom you have around what meaningfully congregations and congregants can do where we're at to support immigrants and refugees who are spread out throughout the country. Mm -hmm. um, because with all the support that's happening, for example, in Providence, Rhode Island, I know that there are thousands and thousands of people who are living in fear of being deported every day there. So even there where the situation is better than in some places, it's, it's a painful reality for people all the time. Can I just say something about that? I mean, when I first came to New York, my first two weeks, um, Amanda Morales came into sanctuary in Washington Heights. And it literally took a full community to take care of that family, a full community. Um, and, and organizations were born because she became into sanctuary, like Action, Action Potluck was born because Amanda Morales was in sanctuary. So I say that to say that we, we as churches have to know that when we have someone in sanctuary, this is everybody's person in, in sanctuary. And the voice that comes out of our pulpits, I mean, we are living at a time where everybody wants to be comfortable. They want the, the comfortable Jesus, which I don't know the comfortable Jesus. Do you know the comfortable Jesus? I, I, but you know, we, we have to use also our platforms to be courageous, to, to speak against the policies in this country so that more people can unite and understand the plight of immigrants in this country. And, and this is a fun idea. El Paso actually is not a sanctuary city. But we don't have the same type of rates with eyes that happen in other communities. Because years back, we set the tone on how those treaties were going to happen in our community. And we said very clearly that we were not going to allow that to happen. So even if officially we're not a sanctuary city, the community said it very clear that that is not how we treat our neighbor and that it is 
that we're a community that respects human dignity. And so even if we don't have that label, it's the way how we organize, how we talk to each other. And, it's, and it is very important that in our communities, in our, in our churches right now, we are, we're starting to be not inclusive only, but also working on, on belonging, right? And, and how do we make spaces so that people can come to our churches, right? How we can have those conversations and also in the services that we're trying to provide that they're trauma-informed um, because there's a lot of that is coming and, and it's not gonna be productive if, if we don't have that lens. I wanted to add something about, uh, and I, I alluded to this in, in what I shared at the beginning, which is how do we talk about these issues? Mm -hmm. How do we talk about rights? And that, that's why the Selma moment, the Selma moment is an important, I think, analogy, which is, Again, that was about the struggle for the affirmation of unrecognized rights, the right to vote, right? Unrecognized rights. Now we're saying it's the right to a dignified life and the right to migrate. 20, 30, 50, 100 years from now, people will look back and say, you mean those children died mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they crossed the border at the wrong time at the wrong place? You mean that people are dying today at this border and in the Mediterranean and between Australia, New Zealand, and Indonesia in the Pacific because they don't have the right paper? That their rights, and it's considered normal, that their rights are diminished because of their citizenship or nationality, because they're on the wrong side of a border? Our kids and our grandkids will look back and say, what did you do? Mm -hmm when that was normal, yes. no? So we have to change the discourse. This is not what the Democratic Party is about. This is not what the debate in Washington is about. I mean, the immigrant rights movement is very important and these are allies and partners that we deeply respect. But the discussion is not about that. And it's also not about root causes. And this is what all of us have been alluding to, which is for the US to turn people away whose exodus it has produced through its policies, mm -hmm. is the essence of sin. Yes. That's structural sin. Mm -hmm. Soy Borica y Mexicana. Y one of the, I really appreciate the data that you gave about immigrants and what they're contributing to our communities. Um, I worry that it positions um, immigrants as into anti-blackness of we are um, working and we deserve to be here because the immigration, and, and you talked about the 1950s, I go further back than that, mm -hmm. right? Our people here go further back than that. The border crossed mm -hmm. us, we did not cross the border. Right. That's right, and so the indigenous part of our immigrant status, um, I worry that we try really hard to say why we deserve mm. to be here mm. when it should be the colonizers who mm. d tell us why they deserve to be here. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And, and so I think my question is, how can we combine both the importance of that data with also saying, you know, yes, as a Puerto Ricanya, yes, we're a citizen, but I don't care about that. My, right. my agency is that I, I'm indigenous to this country, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so how do we combine both of those to be able to um, better educate people about um, truly where, where our place is in this, mm -hmm. in this what is now right. the United States nation, but what to us as indigenous peoples was always ours. Yes, raise their hand up in the room, get those all said, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with, with your collective answer, okay? okay? So I have Darren here, you just answer a question, and then we'll go to the, we'll go over here to Veronica, and There's I see Mama Ruby. Okay, okay. Uh, so I know one of the things when we were in El Paso that we talked about a lot was the Remain in Mexico policy. 
And I know we've sort of talked about pieces of it here, but I wonder for the edification of everybody, because I know I was a little more unfamiliar when we first had those conversations, is what is the Remain in Mexico policy and how is it currently beginning to be implemented? Yeah, so my name is Veronica Carrera, and I just have a question, and it's a delicate question, but I think it's important to talk about all the different angles of the situation. So I totally believe in compassion, and, and I believe that we should welcome refugees and people who struggle from different countries. My name is Veronica Carrera, so I come from South America, so I should understand, but I did not come from a... a country of war or have gone through these extreme difficult struggles. But I want you to answer this question just to consider the other side of the spectrum. Uh, for instance, one of my father's narratives is we totally should let you know, refugees in, people who struggle, and at the same time, where do we draw the line? In, in my case, that's my father speaking, I waited for 10 years, I worked super hard, I worked two, three jobs, and I waited in line to bring everybody in. How does that make some of us feel that there are some who just crossed the border, right? And so I completely understand the siding. I think it's a, a collective <laughs> sentiment that there are people who are struggling, there are people who are dying, and I, it completely breaks my heart. But where do we draw the line, right? When there are people who have actually followed the law and followed the policies, and follow the system, and I'll leave it there. And that's going to be our final question. Uh, other people have other people have said they're they're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna keep going right now. There's one more there. There's there'll be more. there'll be time afterwards where you can connect. Okay. That's fine. Would you like? So I, I want to just say that uh, the is your pronoun she? Okay. So. Uh, the, the woman who is in, in the back, you know, um, she, I think that you gave us the frame, right? Like, we need to, we need to combine both narratives. Uh, in your question, you gave us the frame of um, combining both narratives. I want to just um, also just Veronica's question, and then I'll just leave my panel. Just want to address it really quickly. I think that the, when people are dying and they are in countries of war, and when your children are at risk. There was many years ago, um, I was pastoring a church in Hartford, Connecticut, and I was a young pastor on the pulpit, and most of my, my parishioners were from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. Um, we probably had two Puerto Ricans. Everybody else was some, from somewhere else in Latin America. And when I sat down and I realized, you know, the, the dire situation in those countries, I would say, you know, that the problem here is, is that we need immigration reform. We need immigration reform. We have to create a path that is equitable. And also, that we cannot ignore when people are dying. And particularly, when we have benefited exceedingly from the economies of this country, when we have contributed to their demise, to its demise. When we have been the people who you know, are rich and comfortable because we took from certain countries. So that's, that's, that to me is the line, right? Where, how do we make this right? And that, that's all I'm gonna say. We have to move on to the next panel. Mm. So what I want you to know is that there's going to be a book signing and after this next panel, and Camilo has got a book out there, yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, well, Camila, Ilka, and Damaris can sit at the table and talk with you some out there after the next panel, okay? Thank you. Can we have like a giant round of Thank applause you. for our amazing, amazing Ilka. So good.